whole networks of imposters, people who created fake social media accounts to pretend to be someone else, used to exist for all sorts of purposes, including spreading fake news and attacking people. And they may still exist. But now, with highly automated accounts, bots, consensus, or confusion can be manufactured without further human intervention. At the moment, um, the democracies that we seem to be suffering the most include Brazil, possibly Germany, and the United States. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, how all that fake news designed to sway public opinion, sway your vote, pile on insults, how all that gets around. It's called computational propaganda. I'm Robert Frederick. Our goal is to produce large amounts of evidence gathered systematically so that we can make some safe, if not conservative, generalizations about where public life is going. Philip Howard is the principal investigator of the Computational Propaganda Project based at Oxford University. He was speaking in a lecture hall at the European Conference of Science Journalists held in Copenhagen in late June, which I attended. At the moment, um, the democracies that we seem to be suffering the most include Brazil, possibly Germany, and the United States. But it isn't just democracies that have been suffering. Scientists have been attacked as well, directly, and for quite a while now. In 2009, I was working at Nature in London, and a scientist came to us with a strange tip. Lucas Lauerson is a freelance journalist based in Madrid, Spain, who was also attending the conference in Copenhagen. They said, there's this, no, there's this network of scientists, I think I recognize, real-life scientists, but there's two of them, or two of each of them, on Facebook. And I don't know if something's going on, if someone's copying, you know, real scientists or, or what, but it looks weird. Can you guys look into it? And so we started looking into it. What I found was that a few of the profiles were very meaty. They had real photos. They had real content. They looked a lot like the originals, you know, as far as I could tell. And then there was a kind of a circle around them that looked a little less real. They might have a photo, but they had one or two items on the profile, not a whole lot going back on their wall or posts or whatever. And then there were a handful of people scattered in there, and they were all friends with each other, by the way. And there were a handful that had fewer friends, less information on the profile. So they were kind of like the outer ring of this bizarre network. And so after we kind of mapped out for ourselves who are these things, what are they, I started getting in touch with the real people, but by other means, either through email or whatever, phone numbers. You know, Some of these were researchers at universities. One happened to be a former journalist turned presidential advisor uh, into the science office in, in the U.S. And these people had no idea this had happened. They said, well, why, what? There's, there's another me out there, you know? And so none of us could figure out what was going on. The only thing that com these people had in common, these profiles had in common, was that they'd all been to the same conference. And it was a stem cell bioethics kind of conference. And so we thought, well, maybe there's somebody who is either against or for something about that conference. And so we started looking and looking. 
Lowerson wrote about it for Nature in 2009. And there, were, there was one profile that wasn't a scientist and wasn't a policymaker and had a funny name. It was uh, John Birch. And there's something called the John Birch Society in the U.S. And so we started thinking, well, is there some kind of connection there? Of course, we got in touch with them, and they said, we're not connected to this at all. And maybe that's true. Who knows? It could have been some other fan of John Birch. He's you know, a, a historical figure, and there are plenty of people out there who, who have all kinds of ideas about that or bioethics. So it turns out this network, is, this type of attack is called a Sybil attack because it's two faces. Like the uh, Sybil was, I don't know if it was a goddess or a, something like this. And so that was my first exposure to a botnet, I guess, in which some humans had put themselves at the core of a fake online network and then built up around it a kind of probably scraped and modified network. And then they were friending real people in a way to kind of hybridize. Now, there is no need for a hybrid, says Philip Howard of the Computational Propaganda Project. So in the first presidential debate, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had automated accounts tweeting loudly about how successful they were. But over time, between the first debate, the second, and the third, Trump's bots started announcing that he had won the debate earlier and earlier in the day, such that by the third day, by the third debate, Trump's bots over Twitter were announcing that he had won the debate before the debate was broadcast. Would that be convincing to people, to voters? One wonders. But Howard says that convincing people of something isn't necessarily the goal of such campaigns designed to sway public opinion. The earliest of campaigns originated in Russia. The best of them that we've caught involved the spin around the Malaysian Airlines flight that was shot down over Ukraine in the summer of 2014. The goal for this kind of communications campaign and the automation behind it isn't to put out one counter-narrative or put out an alternative perspective, but to seed multiple conflicting stories that different proportions of the public will all believe in equal, small measure. The effect is that now um, there's at least four of these stories explaining why the Malaysian Airlines flight was shot down. And having multiple conspiracies in play helps, at least from the Russian perspective, to prevent any political reaction. And as you might imagine, in the days before the 2016 United States election, the bots were at it, spreading more and more junk. And we found that in Michigan, there was about a one-to-one ratio. For every piece of professionally produced news content, there was one piece of junk. Some of the data for the Computational Propaganda Project came from Twitter itself and from analyzing what Howard and his colleagues could access from public groups on Facebook. The big data analysis involves big scoops of mostly Twitter data. Uh, Facebook doesn't collaborate well with researchers. It doesn't have an API that we can actually make much use of. So there's a lot of phenomenon that we think that we can identify on Twitter that we hope speaks to what goes on on Facebook. But... um, Without, um, without being able to check these things, without collaborations with Facebook, um, it's difficult to know. Other data for the Computational Propaganda Project was from interviews with a few of the people who program the bots. How do you get such an interview? As with any kind of ethnography of um, marginal or deviant communities, um, the only secret sauce to the method is time and finding one respondent who is um, who gives a good interview who then agrees to be a fixer. In other words, the respondent agrees to set up other interviews. 
And it was through these interviews, Howard and his team learned such things as who these people were, where they lived, and why they were programming bots, these highly automated social media accounts, to sway public opinion. So some of our subjects are from Seattle and San Francisco and Brooklyn. And they're uh, from Montana. They're libertarian programmers who are expressing their citizenship. This is political speech for them. They're expressing themselves. And um, that's another group that does this work. And their clients are not the U.S. government. They're political parties and lobbyists. But to be clear, Howard says, the large campaigns of bots, the ones working to affect the 2016 United States election, at least of those campaigns that he and his team were able to discover, all of them originated in Russia. We did not find them from China. Everything we found so far um, seems to originate in Russia. Over the last year, there are also these predictable crises in democracies. In fact, this is some, to some degree what makes democracies soft targets. Elections are sensitive moments for political structures in, in our democracies. And so we've done a series of memos over the last year about automation and junk news. Uh, we started with the Brexit referendum. We did the three US presidential debates and the election itself. We did the German presidential, mostly as an exercise to, to do some benchmarking for the next presidential voting um, in October. And we did the two stages of the French election and the two stages of the UK election. In response, Howard says that civil society groups in every country are struggling in the face of these automated political attacks via social media, and they're struggling because they don't know how to mount an effective response without also resorting to bots. And so these civil society groups and or individuals who represent a particular view or stance, sometimes they just end up leaving social media as a result of these attacks. Many of the campaigns that we've studied are particularly good at driving women off social media. So prominent feminists, prominent feminist intellectuals, female reporters, uh, female politicians are also soft targets. And there are multiple examples of um, prominent female intellectuals being driven off social media um, with, um, with, uh, with campaigns against their, their public life. After Howard's presentation and the question and answer period was over, I went up to talk with him further. Hi. Hi. You mentioned there was various techniques for discouraging women from remaining yes. on their accounts. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those are. Well, it's mostly sexual harassment over Twitter, um, and it includes some um, you know, dirty words and um, nasty commentary. And uh, it's there have been now multiple in the U.S. Um, pop stars, sort of local political figures who have just been driven off Twitter because of the sexual harassment online. And so this is a highly automated account doing this kind of work? Or? Sometimes it appears to be uh, highly automated accounts from the alt-right in the US. So do you remember the Gamergate story that involved, so Gamergate, uh, and there was automation behind some of those attacks. Okay. Is there something that people can do? Is there something if somebody starts to receive or is a subject of these attacks that they can say, oh, well, I'm, I've just been targeted? The platforms are getting better and better at responding to um, user reports of hate speech or sexual harassment. So, I mean, that's the default thing, report the other user. If, twi if Twitter doesn't act fast enough or, um, you know, the, the network of bot attacks seems to be really expansive, then people pull off social media. And sometimes there's a, um, a goodbye tweet 
where people say, I'm leaving because I'm done. This is too much, and they pull off. And, and that's, that tends to have an impact, too. It, does that stop the bot from continuing the work? Or? Many of the bots that we've, many of the automated accounts that we've studied shift from issue to issue or focus to focus. Some of them go quiet after an election, but there was a handful of bots from the Brexit conversation that switched to being interested in U.S. politics, right? And then switched to being interested in the Italian referendum, and then they switched to being interested in the German election, and then the two French. So there's, there's a little bit of migration, and I mean, that that suggests there's some direction behind it all. Uh, but I, most of the code that goes into creating a bot gets used and repurposed in different ways. Do you have a current list of those bots that you, or, or those highly automated accounts that do you think are out there, but uh, haven't? You, yes, if you, if you have a particular country that you're interested in, then I could make, we make lists of the top 100 highly automated accounts. There's occasionally false positives in them, but Yes, in principle. I mean, I don't have one right now on my laptop, but I would have some old ones from the U.S. election. But um, if you send me a note, I'm happy to, and it's a data set we already have, I'd be happy to carve out some, some material for you. Okay. But you don't publish that as, as part of your this bot summer, prevention. It's more about studying it as it happens. No, um, we're going to be putting up our replication data this summer. Um, and so for each of the reports, well, Twitter has a policy where you can't share the data if you share data, Twitter won't let you study it anymore. So we will be providing the tweet IDs so that you can see which accounts are there, but we, won't, we can't provide any of the content. So I guess I'm saying that they have a policy that kind of discourages us from collaborating too much. Does that seem like a good idea to you? No, to have I agree. That? Yeah, no, I agree. Having some, you know, we can identify, we can identify hundreds of accounts. Um, and then we can publicize the tweet IDs. Somebody else could sort of reverse engineer and look up those accounts fairly easily. Um, but your question is great. Twitter has never asked us to, we've offered to collaborate on this, but they don't, they've never asked us for our yeah, information. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, of course, thank you. Indeed, as you heard my colleague in the press say, that's the news. The lack of apparent interest by these social media companies in collaborating with researchers to shut down these highly automated accounts that attack people. Howard and his team are expected to release their data and next set of reports this summer, which you can find on their website, The Computational Propaganda Project. You can find a link to it and a link to Lowerson's 2009 Nature article on a fake Facebook network. Find it on our website, americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.